John of All Trades Podcast, episode 343. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, it's been a hot minute since I've been here. Got a lot of irons in the fire. Got some announcements coming. Got a lot of cool stuff that I'm into. And man, I'm sorry. Been a minute since I've done John of All Trades. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about City Street Investors. My guest this week is Joe Vostries. And Joe is one of the principals and one of the partners at City Street Investors. Now, what is City Street Investors? I didn't know what it was until I looked it up. Actually, it was a Denver Business Journal article by Ed Sealover, who I adore, who pointed me to this. He was writing about the development in a beer garden in Applewood. Now, one of my favorite restaurants in this entire city is in Applewood. And it got mentioned in this article. It's Teller's Taproom and Kitchen, which is at 20th and Youngfield. It's my favorite breakfast in the city. The breakfast burrito there, the green chili, it's exceptional. We drive all the way out there. It's not even on our side of town, but we go there a ton. And so I go, okay, this is owned by a group. Let's look on their website. And as I looked, they had so many of the places that I love to go. Lowry Beer Garden's on there. North County, Billy's Inn. They own that stretch at 12th and Madison. They used to be partners with Troy Guard in Tag Burger Bar. We used to go to Tag Burger Bar all the time. And I go, man, how is it that one firm owns all of these cool places. There has to be something about the way they conceive, manage, and execute projects. So I had to talk to him. So I reached out to him. I said, hey, I'd love to have you on my show. They agreed. Bob's your uncle. Here's the episode. And I got to tell you, after sitting down with Joe, I go, man, I like this guy. And I like this firm. And I like what they're doing. And that's a nice feeling because you hear a lot about development in this city, and it's usually with like a negative slant. And some of that's understandable. I mean, development is very tough. This is an attractive city to live. You have competing stakeholders who all want something a little bit different and finding common ground and compromise and something that works for the majority of people. Not an easy thing to do. The way City Street does it, they listen to the community first and then give the community what it wants. He tells the story of redeveloping the Hangar 2 like in the Lowry site where the beer garden is and there's like a storage unit facility and then all these cool restaurants like Officers Club and North County. And you go, oh, okay. And when you listen to that process, you go, this makes sense. This is a good way of doing business. So I think you're going to dig this episode, especially if you're a Denverite and you care about this city. It's really fun to hear about a firm that does it right and does it very thoughtfully and with intent. Thrilled to bring you that. A couple of quick plugs from me. This airs on Wednesday, December 28th, on Thursday, December 29th, and Friday, December 30th. I will be guest hosting on KOA, that is 8.50 a.m. here in Denver, from 9 to noon. What am I talking about? I don't know yet. I haven't finished writing the shows, but program director called me and said, hey, would you like to fill in? And I go, yes, I'll figure it out. But there's going to be a bunch of guests. It's going to be a good time. So if you happen to be out and about or you want to listen to me on the terrestrial radio, you have the opportunity to do so. If you're interested in more podcasts from me, Happy Friday is currently taking up a lot of space in my brain because we do that every week. There's fresh content for you. It's cool stuff to do around Denver, stuff from the week, fun stuff we found on the internet. And me, Kevin, and Art are having a great time bringing you the content that we hope you love. Follow that on social media. That's Happy Friday Den. Or email us, happyfridaydenver at gmail.com. As long as you're liking stuff online, J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle for this show. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. And what can I say? Everyone's in the promotions business these days. So the more you can like, the more you can comment, the more you can share, the better off it is for content creators such as myself. We thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Now then, happy to bring you this episode. Number 343 features Joe Vostries. He is a principal and a founder of City Street Investors, has a really cool philosophy about development in Denver, and his episode starts right now. It's because it is old Denver. (laughs) (laughs) That is, Bastions is authentic, right? Yeah, well, there you go. Um, Where'd you grow up? In Denver, Colorado. Grew up in Park Hill. No kidding. 
I uh, I used to live at like 28th and Bel Air. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's I and I still live in Mayfair right now. So, okay. like, yeah, that's my old stomping grounds. I, you know, grew up in Park Hill. I went to St. James Elementary School. <laughs> oh, at, wow. Uh, what is that? 13th and Newport. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, east side of Park Hill. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, do you go to East then? Nope. Went to Central Catholic High School, okay. which is the old cathedral downtown. Right. Uh, I went to Golden. So, um, my wife's also a native, so uh, that's increasingly unusual for those of us to get in the same room together, right? Yep. <laughs> There's still a few of us out there. Yeah. <laughs> My parents came here in like 1971, so they're okay. they're from Chicago, so they're close. I mean, yeah. I, I think you can grandfather them in now after yeah. 50 years. Yep. I'm actually fourth generation. Wow. So. My uh, great-grandmother was born in Como, Colorado, and then my grandmother was born in Louisville, Colorado, and then my dad was uh, born in Denver and also grew up in Park Hill at uh, uh, 14th, or I'm sorry, uh, 16th and Albion. Wow. Yeah. Cool. All right. So this is Joe Vostries, and you are the head of City Street Investors? I'm one of the partners here at uh, City Street Investors. Um, I have two other partners, Pat McHenry and Rod Wagner, and we have a real estate development and investment firm and uh, that is also a little tangentially in the restaurant business. Right. Well, I don't know if you're prepared for how much I'm going to fawn all over tellers <laughs> <laughs> because it's literally my favorite place, and that's a little bit of the origin story of how I found you. When, you know, I read about one of the developments that you have underway in Applewood, my parents actually used to own a restaurant in that complex. It was Andalini's. And when I saw that, I go, oh, the tellers, it was referred to as like a, like a high volume, you know, American craft kind of deal. We go out there for brunch so much. It's our favorite brunch spot in the city. And so as I learned about you, I thought, what a cool company, because I went on your website and I started looking at the investments that you have, and you have so many places that I love, like Cholon and North County and Lowry Beer Garden. Take me through a little bit of how this entity came to be, um, how you founded City Street Investors. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for all the kind words about <laughs> about the places that, you know, we're always obviously thrilled to hear that. Sure. Um, you know, we are, at our heart, we're, we're a real estate investment and development firm. But what we specialize in is placemaking uh, exercises in and around Denver. I mean, I'm, I'm a Denver native. Um, my partners, uh, Pat and Rod, both uh, live here in Denver, and we care a lot about our community. And we just chose when we got into this business to really focus on primarily on adaptive reuse projects. And adaptive reuse just means that you take old buildings and adapt them into something else. Well, I can tell you this. I grew up in Applewood, so where Tellers is. I grew up two blocks from there at 16th and Youngfield. I remember going to that 7-Eleven. And so I used to go there and get my little tub of nachos, a bunch of quarters, and play Street Fighter. <laughs> and so, like, as a kid. And so when I drove by it, I go, oh, wow, how did they turn that 7-Eleven into a restaurant? Yeah. So, I, like, I know firsthand what it looked like before and what it looks like now. It's very, very cool for me personally with, with my history with that. Yeah, it's, it's fun to repurpose old buildings, and we've done a bunch of them, including a couple of 7-Elevens. Tellers isn't the only 7-Eleven <laughs> that, we've, that we've repurposed. But aside from just repurposing old buildings, I mean, part of what we're trying to do, and, and, and we're sincere about it, is that we really want our projects to make the neighborhoods that they're in better. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're fortunate that we're not merchant developers, merchant builders, you know, we, we don't define that for me. I'm not, well, in... that means you just do it for the money, meaning right, okay, that yeah. it, it, that you're, you, and typically a merchant developer would go in, build something, sell it, take the profit, move on to the next, okay. to the next. And, and really it's just that it's really just about uh, doing projects, generating profit, moving on. We basically own everything that we have ever um, redeveloped or built, including our first project, wow. which is some of you may know the building that sits at the southwest corner of 32nd and Lowell that's got oh, a yeah. Chipotle in it and Perfect Petal Flower Shop mm-hmm. and some other really great local tenants. That's the first project we all ever did together, which is, uh, I think it's 25 years ago now wow. that, we, that we've been doing this. And that was an old that was an old beat-up building that had a used furniture store in it, I think. And, and um, we put Chipotle number... 
I always forget. It was either Chipotle number four or Chipotle number seven. I can't remember. <laughs> but I just remember actually had to negotiate the whole lease and get it signed by uh, Steve Ells. I don't think he's. Wow, really? I don't think he. I don't think he's signing leases anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, back then, you know, it was uh, it was great to bring them to the neighborhood. That was the the first adaptive reuse project that we did, and we still own it. And since then, you know, we've just done you know tons of projects, you know, all kind of in that that same vein. You know, interesting. While I was doing a lot of this work, I was simultaneously working as the general manager and chief operating officer of. Larimer Square, wow. a job that I did for, for some 22 years. Well, and iconic. I mean, if you know Denver, you know Larimer Square. So, I mean, that's, that's a high-profile deal. Yeah, a lot of fun working there. The project at, uh, while I worked there was primarily owned by a guy named Jeff Hermanson, uh, who has, is an investor in many of our projects. So he's kind of the, he'd kind of be the fourth guy out there on a, not, not all of the projects, but on a number of the projects that we've done, you know, Jeff's, Jeff's also a partner in. Wow. Okay. So Joe, why do it this way? Why not be a merchant developer? That seems like it would be easier, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes. And no. I mean, it's, um, it's just a different approach and um, we're all locals and (laughs) I do describe it as you know, we really count ourselves fortunate that we have the luxury of being able to do this. You know, that we don't, we're, we're not supporting a giant outfit. We don't have a thousand uh, employees that we, I mean, we actually do have a thousand employees <laughs> because of all the, the restaurants. But it's not, it's not like, you know, we built up this machine that we have to feed, oh, right? Sure. That you constantly need to earn development fees and so on, that we're right. able to move slowly and carefully and and do projects and hold them forever. So there, we don't need to sell them in order to keep going is how we wanted to do it. And we're, we're proud of our projects. A lot of developers say, don't fall in love with your project. Well, we're exactly the opposite. <laughs> you know, we totally fall in love with our projects and selling them is like, would I mean, the mere thought of selling some of them gives me like panic attack. Wow. Right. What, like, what a cool philosophy to have in a town that is constantly changing, too. Because Denver has had a lot of influx of new residents and transplants and things like that. And it reminds me of a story I read about New York, where Greenwich Village has some of the highest rents, you know, especially commercial rents. But people are attracted to it because it's sort of that bohemian feeling. You know, it's got cool local stuff. But then you had landlords and developers selling to the highest bidder, and that's usually like Chase Bank or something. The neighborhood no longer looks like what made it attractive in the first place. And it sounds like you're being very thoughtful and intentional in creating a place that still speaks to the character of wherever it is. Yeah, it it is a weird phenomenon in, in development that, you know, if you really want to read more about this in detail, just read Jane Jacobs, The Death and Life of American Cities, in that she really understood what you, how what you just described happens. And, and I, you can see it all over the, over the place that real estate generally goes to the highest bidder. Sure. Right? And so a lot of times you'll have an area that starts out as like artist studios and really funky boutiques and stuff like that, and it kind of catches on. And then the next thing you know, the rents keep going up, the rents keep going up, and pretty soon you've squeezed out everybody and you have banks and salons and, you know, the kind of, the kind of places that can pay the highest possible yeah, rent. exercise studios and things like that. Right. Yeah. So it, you know, what, what it takes... To not have that, at least in in some smaller scale, is that a landlord or an owner that is really interested in keeping the place to be something special for the neighborhood. That, but the temptations are great, you know. Sure. That uh, here's somebody will come in and pay these huge rents, and it's very hard to say no to those. And sometimes, you know, you have to you maybe let one in to you know kind of sure. help uh, pay for things. But for the most part, we don't you know we we don't do that. We really think very carefully about the you know the kinds of tenants that we have. And in some of our projects, we have made a very firm commitment that we simply will not allow in any non like Colorado tenants or non-local tenants. And Denver Union Station is a good example. Totally. Every single tenant in Denver Union Station is local. Um, Some of them are big, like Snooze, but Snooze is a Denver-based business. And But then you've got, you know, local chefs like Jennifer Jasinski and and Alex Seidel there. And so we've sort of made that commitment that—and our fear is that if we did change that tenant mix and have, like, 
you know, out-of-state big chain tenants in there. The concern is that, you know, Denver Union Station might lose its relevancy. Mm. Like the locals wouldn't necessarily feel like it's their place anymore. Right. So for us, it's, it's a, a, you know, a decision that we think is not only better for the community, but in the long range is probably better financially because mm. it'll help maintain the relevancy of the project uh, over the long haul. You know, we really used a very similar strategy at Larimer Square during the 22 years uh, when the, when I was there. When I first got to Larimer Square, it mostly had chain tenants in it. P- people have forgotten that. Really? But, in, but in the 90s, there was Ann Taylor, there was William <laughs> Sonoma, there was Talbot's, there was a body shop. I mean, it was a lot of chain tenants. Now, interestingly enough, when those tenants went into to Larimer Square, they were the only one of their kind in the state. But subsequently, you got Cherry Creek Mall got built. Oh, and, sure, yeah. Uh, other malls got built, and all of a sudden, where, there, where Larimer used to have the only Ann Taylor in the state of Colorado, there was, I don't know how many, yeah, a dozen. Yeah, there's a bunch of them now. Right. So um, Larimer Square lost its relevancy. Huh. Um, huh. And what we did is figuring, okay, we can't out Cherry Creek, Cherry Creek, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. We had to create... Uh, a new destination. And that new destination was, okay, let's turn it back to the locals. And so we made a commitment to have local tenants, local boutiques, local chefs uh, in there to create something that didn't exist anywhere else, you know, this collection of local stuff. And, you know, it it was good financially because it gave us a differentiation from everything else that was out there. But the locals had to love it because, you know, here's a place where you can go. And for the most part, you don't have chain tenants. And to the extent that we did have chain tenants, there was a deal that you had to be regionally exclusive. So that's why they're the only Capitol Grill, the only Ocean Prime Right. Uh, are in the are in those locations. So anyway, that's that's that is sort of the strategy, and it's it's a place making strategy. It's it's all devised around making sure that this place is valued by the locals and that it's relevant to them. You know right. that it has something that they're not getting everywhere else. Well, and that also has a double benefit beca- uh, because it is now attractive to tourists as well because it doesn't look like every other city, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it's so funny is that we figured that out a long time ago. Is that if you make a place that is all about locals and for locals, the tourists <laughs> seek it out, right? Because yeah, they show it, up. Be, right, because it's like, well, you know, I've come to Denver. How do I find Denver? Because right. if, I, if if this looks just like Scottsdale, you know, <laughs> it's like I could just go to Scottsdale. Yeah, so I, I could go to the Cheesecake Factory in my own town. Right, right? I, exactly, right? So that's, that, that's a really interesting thing about, you know, which isn't to say that tourists won't go to places that have all sure. the... All the all the tenants that they're familiar with. Uh, I think of Times Square, like when you go to New York and you see people lined up outside the Olive Garden, like in Times Square. <laughs> you go, what are you even doing? There's a whole <laughs> section of the city called Little Italy. Right. Well, yeah. It's, it's, there, there is definitely a segment of the population that really likes what's familiar. Sure. Right? And so they're, they're getting it. And uh, God bless them. More, more power to them. Live and let live, right? That's... Not exactly what I'm seeking out. How unusual is this approach in terms of real estate development? I'm sure you're in contact with your peers in this town. Yeah, it. I don't. It's not. It is not unique, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not common. There are some other developers in Denver that you know um, use similar approaches to their projects. Charlie Woolley is one. You know, he redeveloped the tattered cover building on East Colfax, and he's oh, got yeah. he's got some other projects where he's really worked hard on adaptive reuse of of old buildings and and largely kept you know local type tenants in there, and is doing that same kind of place making work. It's a it's a, it's an interesting niche to occupy in that the projects are really really hard, and that's why I had said but, earlier, you know, I have heart palpitations if I think about selling them. And part of the reason <laughs> for that isn't just that we love them, but they're hard. And when you work that hard, look, if 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 I was just stamping out Seven Eleven stores, right, <laughs> right, you, you just build one and move on to the next. You're not going to get emotionally attached to it, and they're relatively easy. But here, you know, where you're taking an old building and trying to figure out how to save it and what to do with it. Mm. Um, you know, the, it, the work is so hard and it's such a creative process that, you know, the idea of just handing it over to somebody else is kind of <laughs> alarming. No kidding. I mean, I think about something like uh, the development in Lowry, right? Where you have a bunch of that stuff, Lowry Beer Garden and North County. 
and the Admirals Club, like all places where when they went in, my wife and I go, oh, God, there's finally like some more good stuff on this side of town. And I'm like, why have I never heard of this? Well, you just described it because it's unique to, to that kind of thing. How long does it take when, let's say you're eyeing a site, right, that you're looking to acquire? How long does it take from, say, acquisition to let's cut the ribbon and let people in? Yeah, it, these, I these, mean, uh, that might be hard to generalize, but... Yeah, it is. But here's what I'll tell you, is that compared to most projects, it takes a long time. <laughs> because you start off with a puzzle, right? Yeah. That, you know, it's like, well, what is this thing? Now, think, you brought up the, the project in Lowry. It's an interesting one. So I live in Lowry. And in fact, I only live like, I don't know, a couple thousand feet from the Hangar 2 project, the yeah. historic Hangar 2 project in Lowry. And I've lived in Lowry since 1998. Oh, my. So we've been there almost since the, the very beginning. I raised my kids there. But think about what this was. It was a five-acre site that was all asphalt and concrete and had a 1939 airplane hangar <laughs> sitting on it that, you know, was just little more than a shade structure, right? Had no infrastructure. Like terrible disrepair. Yeah. I mean, it was, well, the building itself, the hangar itself was pretty solid, but, sure. you know, hangars leak and, you know, it didn't, it didn't have air conditioning or heat. I mean, it was basically like this just metal shade structure, right? <laughs> right. And so, and it's five acres and it's sitting in the middle of Lowry. I mean, what are you going to do with it? Hmm. And so, you know, it's a puzzle that you have to figure out. One of the things that we do in our company that I think distinguishes us from most of the other people who do the kind of work we do is that we have this public outreach focus group process that we call custom crafting. And but what we mean when we say we're custom crafting the project is that rather than us create the idea for the project, we reach out to the community and figure out what do you want? What do you need? What's nice. required here? What goes into that process? Well, a lot of it is uh, focus groups. Like okay. We actually conduct real focus groups. We bring in business owners, people who live in the neighborhood, people who work in the neighborhood, students, a broad variety like of people. Like with the two-way mirror and all that? <laughs> no, we don't go quite that far, but we bring them into, into small groups okay, and yeah. we give them surveys to fill out and yeah. we find out who they are, what they value, what they care about, what they're afraid of, what they need. And, and, and we do a deep, deep dive it, it's twofold. One is that we really, really want to give the community what they want. But one of the benefits is that if we do it and we're successful, the success of our project is basically insured, right? Yeah, true. We've given the people exactly <laughs> what they want. So in Lowry, it was interesting because here you have this giant hangar. It's 90,000 feet. That's two acres yeah. of, of, uh, of, of a shade structure, a clear span. Uh, sitting on this five-acre concrete old runway, right? And yeah. But by this time, you know, Lowry was getting pretty well developed. There were a lot of people living there. The houses had been infilled. And so what we found out in the focus group results is that one is that people really didn't want to see a giant development that was going to create a lot of noise and a lot of traffic. So mm. they really don't want that. And they were scared because the hangar is huge. It's 90,000 feet. Sure, yeah, you can right? fit a lot of stuff in there. Right, so please don't. You know, please don't put something in there that's just going to disrupt the neighborhood. We want something quiet and something that doesn't generate a lot of parking. But what we really want is we need we need a couple things. We need some good food and beverage. Like, we just don't have much over here. Yeah, that's true. But the biggest thing we're missing, and this really came out of those focus groups, is that there's no center of gravity to Lowry. There's no there there, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's houses. Yeah, there's, a, there's an Albertsons. But, like, when you think about other neighborhoods, I mean, think about Wash Park or you think yeah. about... Uh, West Highlands. West Highlands has 32nd and Lowell. There's like, you got South Pearl. That defines that neighborhood, right? Think about Old Town Arvada, right? That defines that neighborhood. Lowry doesn't have a there there. So we really want a place where if you live in Lowry, this is where you go. Sure. If I go here, I'm going to see all my neighbors. You know, we're all going to know each other. That's where, and so our solution from that was as follows. One is that we turned the hangar itself into self-storage. It's the quietest use in the world, <laughs> right? There's, there's no people in there. There's I, just grandma's furniture and your old, you know, checkbook stubs. I, I used to have a space in that storage. <laughs> I, like, no joke, I did. Yeah. It's quiet. Yeah. Generates no parking and no traffic, right? Great point. And, it's, <laughs> and it was a good use for the hangar, and it, it's full. This thing is like 99%. There's 636 units in there, and they're all full. And like I said, it's very, very quiet. 
And then meantime, you know, the beer garden was the, became the community gathering place. Mm-hmm. The, and we knew it had to be family-friendly, and it had to be big outdoor space, and it's the place where everybody who lives in Lowry, if you're over at the soccer fields, you come over afterwards. The idea was that this is your place. This is the neighborhood's place to just hang out, bring the whole family. Does, you can come in with 50 people. doesn't matter. You don't need a reservation, right? And then we added um, an Italian restaurant in Mercado, which is a um, locally-owned Italian restaurant. And then we did a little bit deeper research and found that the neighborhood wanted some sort of fresh, healthy food. That was North County. And then the older folks in the neighborhood said, we really want a place that's like a really nice place to go out to eat, and that is Officers Club. So basically, the, that, all that research told us what the neighborhood wanted and needed and valued and what they were afraid of and what they mm-hmm. didn't want. And, and lo and behold, that's how Hangar 2 came uh, Hangar 2 is what it is because the neighborhood basically pushed us into saying, this is what we want here, and we delivered. Wow. That is really, really cool in terms of process. And, I mean, I, I've done it similarly. I us- I'm usually the one getting yelled at when I'm doing, like, natural resource projects because my entire background is, like, public outreach for, like, oil and gas and wind mm-hmm. and things like that. So you have public outreach there, and usually people are just upset at me for any number of reasons. But it's like, hey, we're going to put something in your neighborhood. What do you want it to be? <laughs> that sounds like very little yelling. That is absolutely right. You know, we're not interested in doing developments that make people hate us <laughs> or that <laughs> be like, a strange business model. But it goes on all the time. Oh, well, yeah, as, yeah, as a practical matter, about? it does. I mean, yeah. developers go into areas and they they have something that they want to do, and a lot of times the neighborhood doesn't want it, yeah. and they end up in a bit of a battle trying to figure it out. And, and usually the neighbors can put enough influence on the development to, you know, to have it morph in some way that makes them a little bit happier with it. But our approach is the reverse. We don't have an idea and go looking for a location. We start with the location and then say, we need ideas. What do you want? What do you need? Uh, What do you value? And we're going to give you that. You know, we did the same process, for example, at Denver Union Station. And everything that you see in Denver Union Station the type of tenants we have, everything about it inside is, is a manifestation of what we learned in, the, in those outreach efforts. Wow. I, I think about the process you're describing reminds me of when they were trying to put like a Walmart at 9th and Colorado um, when they were redeveloping the whole medical campus. And the, the residents showed up and said, no, we don't want this. And now that whole area is transformed remarkably. Yeah, it, that's a good example. Of that. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that had the Walmart been built there, it would have been very successful. It would have been fine. <laughs> it would, you know, it, the, and the neighbors would use it. Like, <laughs> but, the, but the reality is, is that they wouldn't have been happy about it. No. Right? It's just, okay, it's there. I'll use it. You know, and, and, and they would just say, it's, just wish it wasn't here. I, if I need to go to Walmart, I would happily drive another 15 or 20 minutes so that it's right. not here. But that, that's a good example of how... Sometimes somebody has an idea for what they want to do, and the neighborhood just doesn't want it, and then you end up in a battle. We've just learned that it's easier to start with what do you want than the other way around. So, okay, so you have the the public and the neighbors tell you what they're looking for. Then how do you go about finding talent? Because at all of these places, the quality is just so good. You know, How do you form partnerships with folks who actually execute the restaurants and the developments on the ground? Well... And what you, the question you're just asking is also, how did you end up in the restaurant business, <laughs> right? So as real estate developers, how do you end up in the restaurant yeah. business? I mean, the reality is, is that the reason we're in the restaurant business is sometimes the only way that we could get what we wanted was to do it ourselves. Oh, So like the beer garden, we took all this information about what we knew the neighborhood wanted and, you know, sort of started like figuring out, well, what does that look like? And, you know, we landed on this idea, my God, this is a beer garden is perfect. And part of that is because my wife and I had traveled in the Czech Republic uh, pretty extensively. And these kinds of beer gardens are everywhere in the Czech Republic. And they're super family friendly. And we had nothing like it in the United States. But you'd go to these things in some little village in in, in the Czech Republic and you could just see like, these big families are there, the aunts, the uncles, grandma, grandpa, the kids, you know, and everybody, and it's all outdoors and everybody's having this great old time. And so I knew like this would meet the needs of what was described to me. Then you go out to the marketplace 
and you try and sell this idea. <laughs> and it's just really hard to find somebody who wants to do your vision. Oh, true. <laughs> right? <laughs> People have their own visions. And so it's like, but, you know, we, we know this will work here because we did all the research. So a lot of times we have to end up doing it ourselves. Not always, but sometimes. And we don't go first to us doing it. We would rather work with someone else and have them be a tenant rather than doing it ourselves. We're not opposed to doing it ourselves, but if we do all of these ourselves, it will be a little weird and the the projects won't have the same like layering and uh, complexity and just authenticity that we want. So we try and if possible, we'd rather have a mix of, you know, third party operators that fit the custom crafting uh, goals that we identified in our process and and we were successful at union station you know we got alex seidel to do mercantile to right. fill one category snooze on the breakfast and you know jen jasinski on her restaurant so a lot of times we are able to find partners uh or tenants or partners and we have on occasion invested co-invested with a partner to okay. get a project done that's how we got you know, we're not currently partners with Troy Guard, but we have been previously. He's graduated to where he doesn't need us anymore. What was but. that? Um, so I know you you all own 12th and Madison. Right. Right. And so we used to go to Tag Burger Bar all right. the time. That was a joint venture of ours yeah. with Troy, yeah. yeah. We also originally joint ventured with him on Tag at Larimer Square. Oh, we, cool, yeah. We, we helped provide some of the investment to get him started. Like I said, he's graduated. He he's doing fine for himself. Yeah, he doesn't need us anymore. <laughs> but um, uh, he's, he's, like I said, graduated on. But So really, there's three ways of doing it. Do it ourselves, invest in with a partner, or just find some third party who sure. who, who really fits the, the uh, plan for the project. Right, where you have some sort of shared vision that, that's that, right. that you're both bought into. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. I mean, and that's leadership right there. One thing I'll say is um, across these places, Cholon, Tellers, uh, the Beer Garden, outstanding green chili. Do you guys have anything <laughs> to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I love green chili, that's for sure. And My favorite is literally a Teller's. Yeah, the, like, you know, the green chili, to, to me, the, at least the kind of green chili that we typically eat here in Colorado, I mean, I've eaten green chili all over the country, and Colorado has a very distinctive mm-hmm. green chili. Maybe it's, you can find some that's pretty similar in New Mexico, but... In a lot of places, you know, they can be very, very different. Oh, yeah. And we have a very distinctive kind of green chili here that we like in Colorado. And so, yeah, we, we it does end up on a lot of the menus just because these are hyper-local places, and you got to give the people what they want. And yeah. people in Colorado like green chili. <laughs> they certainly do. But uh, as, I, you know, as I connected it across, once I started looking into all the all the restaurants and properties you have, I go... Man, I haven't had bad green chili done in these places. I'm wondering if that's a house recipe. <laughs> you know, that's it, so funny because they're all slightly different. Oh, they are. You know, but, you know. But uh, so each, you know, each one is sort of developed with whoever the chef is, and you know, we don't certainly don't want to have just one green chili. For instance, at North County and Billy's Inn, the the green chili is thickened with masa, which mm. is kind of interesting because it gives it this like little bit There's of a flavor twist. Mm. And um, it also makes it gluten-free. Ah. So a lot of times the green chilies are thickened with yeah. flour or roux. And so, they, like I said, it varies from location to location. But, you know, at the heart of these recipes, I think, is the fact that you're starting with, you know, fire-roasted green chilies and, you know, and pork shoulder. And, you know, you just kind of go from there. And <laughs> if you use quality ingredients, you're going to get a good quality outcome. Well, it reminds me a little bit of uh, I used to play racquetball, which racquetball is a weird game. Because it's you and another person in a big square room with a ball, and that's it. Yet the creativity that comes out of that limited sort of data set is remarkable. Like if you've ever played racquetball, the shots are insane. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sometimes you're hitting the ball the opposite direction of where you need it to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like you start with some roasted chilies and some pork shoulder. Figure the rest out yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And just make sure it tastes great. <laughs> so when you're, when you're trying to create these places that are gathering places and part of the community, does that limit turnover in terms of the folks who work for you? Because, I mean, that, that seems like that would give them greater buy-in, or do you have similar problems as the rest of the industry we, does? We certainly have similar problems to the rest of the industry. But, yes, we do have many, many 
you know, long-term employees. We've got a bunch of people at Denver Union Station that were there in 2014 when we opened it, and they're still there. We've got, um, you know, managers that have been with us for a really long time. One of our restaurants in Edgewater, Sloan's Bar and Grill, uh, Danielle, the manager there, I think she's been there, I don't know, 12 years. Wow. I mean, a long time. So we do have some <clears throat> folks that really – and the reason they stay is because they care – and because they're attached to their community. Sure. Um, and, you know, within these little communities, because these are neighborhood spots, they know everybody. <laughs> right. And so it becomes part of their identity, and it's hard for them to leave. But at the same time, it's still the restaurant business. And in Colorado, in I think Colorado is like a lot of other Western cities in that there's a lot of people here that are from somewhere else and are on their way to somewhere else. Right. And so, you know, a lot of your employees are... They might be in architecture school or they might be sure. getting their yeah. master's degree or, you know, there's they're they're on a path and they're doing this. And so, you know, they're they're not going to be lifelong bartenders or lifelong servers. So you do have, a, you know, you continue to have a fair amount of turnover. And, of course, the the pandemic was really sad because it blew everybody up. Right. Yeah. yeah. How, how did it affect you all? Like- well, I mean, we were affected like everybody else. You know, we had to shut down and go to a takeout model, takeout and delivery model. But, yeah, I mean, we shed hundreds and hundreds of employees. There just wasn't work for everybody. And I dearly would have loved to have kept them on and, and made sure that they came back. But the fact of the matter is is that, you know, the people got spread to the four winds and they yeah. they moved out of state. A lot of people just left the business altogether. But, uh, you know, we did. We were lucky enough to get a lot of great people to come back. But it's still, you know, the restaurant business, it's just the nature of it. Yeah. And, and in a way, it's a good thing. I mean, you know, an, an example of how I could say that that's a good thing is that over the, I'll, I'll use the Lowry Beer Garden as an example. Over the years, and that restaurant's now, I think, 11 or 12 years old. I can't remember. Over the years, mm-hmm. I have customers today that mm-hmm. are... 22 years old, 23 years old, right? <laughs> yeah. When they were 10 years old, we were chasing around the parking lot telling them to stop throwing rocks. Right. <clears throat> when they were 16 years old, they were working for us as bussers. <laughs> and now they're 22 years old. <laughs> and getting a drink. And they're getting a drink. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of the nature of the business is that, yeah. you know, they grow and they change. But if you're part of the community... A lot of those people are just there and different. Sure. <laughs> They're still there. It's like, oh, I had my little league banquet there. Yeah, right, yeah. we have a lot. We we have a lot of folks like that, and you know, because we're seasonal business, you know, we employ a bunch of those people. We also have an ice cream shop there that. You know, oh we yeah, employ my, a my lot kids of, love that ice yeah, cream. By we the way. employ. A lot of 15, 16, 17-year-olds that, that work, and then a few years later, they're back, you know, drinking beer. Some of them will probably end up being managers for us at some point. You know, there's, I, it feels like there's less opportunities for teenagers these days to get work, too. So it's so cool that you employ. Yeah, it, you know, it's tough. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's benefits to the dramatic minimum wage increases we've had in Denver. Yeah. Um, and there's some, <clears throat> there's some downside to it. You know, the upside is that restaurant employees today are probably financially better off than they've ever been. They can make they make real money. I mm-hmm. mean, living wage. You can you can make enough money to, you know, buy a house, have cars, raise kids. I mean, it, it's a real living at this point. The downside of it is it's been rough on the kids for one thing. You know that sure minimum wage is minimum wage, and it's like for this price. You know, I can hire somebody who's 22 or 24. Yeah. I can hire somebody who's 16. You know, it makes it it makes it tough for the 16-year-olds to compete. But the good news is the seasonal work really helps there, and that's sure. when they need it anyway. So yeah, that, that's their schedule is going to be limited otherwise. Right. So that makes sense. One pandemic note: you'll uh, you'll be happy to know when we got takeout from North County. We also got takeout from Tellers a bunch, but North County in particular, it was during the toilet paper shortage. Yeah, they included a role. In our to-go order for us. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was I, a nice touch. I started doing that because I, I had asked I had <laughs> asked the restaurants, like, do, do I need to be worried about the, the restaurants are going to run out of toilet paper? And what I found out is that the supply chain for commercial toilet paper oh. and the supply chain for like you know, retail. retail toilet paper, mm-hmm. completely and totally different. There was <laughs> never even remotely a shortage of 
commercial toilet paper. You know, the big rolls that are individually wrapped that we use in office buildings and restaurants and stuff. There was never a shortage of that. And it's not expensive. So I said, (laughs) just order a bunch of it in and just stick one inside everybody's bag just as a little touch. It's just like... Here you go. I mean, just something. <laughs> I thought you might need this. It was a little weird. It was kind of, you open up your to-go bag and you pull out a roll of toilet paper. But I, it, I got to tell you, of all the little things that we've done over the years, that one has probably received more favorable comments than any guy Well, and it was just so of. unexpected, too. And it was, like, very of its moment. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, like, uh, it, and it was, like, just this attention to detail. You know, we, we get our Mexican food and then, you know, like, our... We had like PBR tall boys or something. And I'm like, oh, and a roll of toilet paper. All right. <laughs> cool. I, there were definitely people who were grateful. Uh, I mean, genuinely grateful for that because they actually needed it. <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't need it. Um, it was a nice to have, not a need to have. Well, for us. you know, if nothing else, it gave you a greater sense of security. Certainly. <laughs> um, in Denver, you know, you'll hear criticism of elected officials being too cozy with developers, right? Like uh, the mayor of Denver, you know, favoring developers over other stakeholders in the city, right? It seems like some of that criticism would be muted if more development happened like this. I, well, for, I, I actually think it would be, but there are still, even then there, are, there can be challenges. Remember that I'm primarily working in the retail world mm-hmm. and people are very, very interested in the kind of amenities that we can bring to the neighborhood. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. right. So if you're a residential developer, you're not bringing that same level of amenities to the neighborhood necessarily. But here's the, here's the thing about the elected officials and the mayor, they are in, I can appreciate the really tough spot that they're in because one of the things that we, we all know this for a fact is that there's a major housing crisis, Oh God, right? Yes. We simply do not have enough places for people to live yeah. and rents are high and we need more housing. Bottom line, if people continue to move to Colorado, they need a place to live. Um, now some people might say, Oh, well, you know, if we build fewer places, fewer people will come. No way. That, I don't That's know if it's a- true or not, but the bigger concern is, is that anytime you restrict the supply of something, the price of that something goes way, way yeah. up. And we're seeing that right now. Yeah. I mean, rents are really high. So the elected officials are really concerned about this. They really think about it a lot. And they're under pressure on one side to make sure that we're providing housing. And to do that, sometimes you got to build stuff. On the other side, you've got neighbors who uh, understandably don't want their neighborhoods negatively impacted. They don't want to be overwhelmed with traffic. They don't want to be overwhelmed with, you know, parking problems and all those things. So there is this tension between the two. And when, you know, when the, when an elected official, a city council person or the mayor or somebody is supporting a project, the neighbors can get understandably upset because sure. we're like, we just really don't want this, but try and put yourself in the shoes of the person whose job it is to make the hard decisions. Like we need this stuff. And we, and the solution is not to keep sprawling. That is not a good solution to just mm-hmm. keep pushing people further and further and further out. I mean, anybody who's driven I 25 North knows what oh, I'm talking God, yes. about. It goes on as far as the eye can see or go, go Southeast, you know, where you come over a rise and you look off into the distance, and there's this vast ocean of one-story, you know, residential. Yeah. And you can't – I mean, you, I guess you can keep doing that, but you understand that there's trade-offs, right? So now the trade-off is that you got to keep building highways, and you got to keep building schools out there. Yeah. And, and guess what happens when you do that? We, now in Denver, we have a bunch of schools. I think there's five or something that Our, are on the. Ours was on the list. That are on the list that because you know there's no there's nobody to go there. So I, I'm not arguing one side or the other. I'm not taking a position on this. I'm just describing the dynamics that people just need to think about. Like there's trade offs, mm-hmm. right? And you you can decide. Everybody gets the right to decide where they place their own values on those trade-offs. Yeah, I think that's really well stated. Um, it is very challenging. And I, I'll tell you, working in energy, I always say there's no such thing as perfect energy because every energy source has trade-offs, whether it's wind, whether it's solar, whether it's biomass, whether it's coal, which has powered this country forever. There are trade-offs to each. And so 
as a society, we have to decide and have a conversation about what we value. And some people are going to be upset about what ends up getting valued higher. Right. And it's, uh, but that's what, you know, the democratic process is all about, right? right? We all got to get together and talk and sometimes we're going to be really happy with the outcome and and sometimes we're not going to be as happy, but regardless, you, you know, we all find our point of view and everybody should advocate for what they value and what their point of view is and fight for it and try and persuade others to their, to their way of thinking. And that's, that process should, in the long run, we'd like to hope that that yields a good outcome. Totally. <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least that's the theory. Does it, you know, in practice, it doesn't always happen. Okay, I have two questions for you, and I'm going to let you get back to your day. One is, what's next? What do you have in the pipeline? And, and how, how, much, how much bigger do you aspire this to be? Well, we don't have any growth goals per se, right? Okay. We um, are opportunistic in the sense that if it looks like there's something that we should do, that, that's what we want to do. If our skill set is appropriate, then that's the project that we want to do. And if, if that means we don't build anything for a couple of years, that's okay. Hmm. We, we, we have no need to, to keep building things. It's not a, it's not a requirement okay. of, of what we do. That, that said, the, the thing that we've been, that we've been doing is the, this beer garden thing has been really, really interesting because it, we have three of them now. There's one in Green Valley Ranch. I've and, been to that one too. And there's one in Edgewater. So they're interesting because our custom crafting approach requires normally that we go find out what's wanted. You start with the location and then figure out what's wanted. Well, what's happened is, is that we've got all these communities around the metro area that are coming to us now and saying what we want is a beer garden, yeah. right? So, um, so the, it's sort of short circuits our our whole you know customer <laughs> process. Yeah, right? like we it's like we don't need the process; we just need the beer garden, right? So, <laughs> so there are three under planning and development wow. right now, um, and one in Applewood, mm-hmm. um, one in Arvada, and one in Broomfield. And these are long, complicated projects. You know, the beer gardens, although they're relatively simple in terms of, you know, it's just a big outdoor area and a relatively simple building, they require a lot of space. Mm-hmm. And depending on the location, they may require a lot of parking. And they're, you know, they're relatively seasonal. You cannot go out and develop one for 5 or $10 million. The, you know, the business, the business model wouldn't work on, on that. So... You know, Wait, what, what, what would you have to develop it for? I mean, they typically have, they're typically going to be around three, two to two to four million dollars okay. is, and that includes buying the land, getting yeah, all okay. the infrastructure in place, building it, furnishing it. So they're they're ex- they're they're still relatively expensive, but they're really big, and they're uh, in terms of their footprint because you have in order for them to work, they got to have all this outdoor space, yeah. which is great. But in the wintertime, you're not going to use that much, so. The, the business plan for those has to reflect the fact that the volume in, you know, December, November, December, January, and February is going to be a lot lower than it is yeah. in, you know, April through October. So that has to be taken into account in terms of how much you invest in it. But that's all okay. But the projects are complicated to find the right location and then make sure that the numbers work so that they can be there for a long time and, and can endure you mean, and, and that we can take care of them, sure. you know, that they make enough money that we can reinvest them in and, and you know, keep, keep the quality up and make sure the community continues to love them. Yeah. Not that I would ever have to think about this for more than a few seconds while I'm there, but the way you described it, yeah, that is complex. Um, my second question is, <laughs> I know of a 7-Eleven on 16th in Colorado. You want to turn that into Teller's East for me? <laughs> <laughs> 16th in Colorado. I'm trying to picture that one. So let's see. That's so little... like right by oh, City Park. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do know that one. Yeah. I used to go. So my grandmother lived at 16th and Albion. Okay. So, yeah. I, spent so right there, of, yeah. I spent plenty of time when I was a kid. That 7-Eleven's been there for a very long time. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's derelict now. Yeah, I think there's another derelict 7-Eleven at Monaco and Colfax, That's too. even closer to me. Than, <laughs> that would be even better. Yeah, so, so 7-Elevens are problems, you know, because <laughs> uh, they're, although we've adaptively redone two of them, mm-hmm. the Teller's building and the Tag Burger Bar building, that was a 7-Eleven, too. 
Um, Tag was? Yeah. Wow. Tag Burger Bar. Tag Burger Bar, yeah. yeah those are both old 7-Elevens. Huh. That, um, they're tough because the buildings are really small. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're typically only 22 to 2,500 square feet, and they don't have very much parking. No. So they're really challenging to redevelop, and, um, you know, especially into something that you really want. So... Unfortunately, that's why we see a lot of them turned into kind of low, what I would call lowest common denominator uses. Like, you know, maybe it becomes a, a marijuana store or something like or that. Check cashing it, or something. Or check cashing yeah. or something like that. That, you know, I mean, people use them and need them, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they value them as. No, they're not going to ignite the passion. Right. That, that, that when it, if you were to go in and do what we do and ask the neighbors, <laughs> what do you need and what do you want? Those things don't usually rise to the, to the top of the list. One hundred percent. All right. Well, Joe, this has been an absolute pleasure. Now's the time of the show when we do plugs. Uh, where can people find you? Anything you'd like to plug, do it now. Oh, you know, listen, just support your, you don't have to just support us. I mean, what I, my, my plea to everyone is please support your local chefs, your local restaurants. I don't have anything against the chains, you know, but, um, no, they serve their purpose, but we've got part of the reason I want everybody to support the locals is because that's where the talent comes from, Mm. right? That we need to support and grow our local talent and, you know, that's where it occurs. And so if, if we support that, that, it's sort of like takes care of everybody else. So just support your support your local stores, your local restaurants, and um, we'll just you know we'll have a better city for it. You sir are a ray of sunshine. Thank you so much, and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. And that'll do it for episode three forty three of the John of All Trades podcast with Joe Vostries, founder and partner at City Street Investors. Man, check out their restaurants. Go to CityStreetInvestors.com. You can see all of their locations, everything that they've developed. Man, what a cool guy. What a great conversation. Proud to feature their words here on the John of All Trades podcast. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, number 4, E-S. Anything you're doing on the web, 4Degrees can help you do it better. The website design, social media marketing, online advertising, email campaigns. Basically, if you need to reach people, 4Degrees can help you do it more effectively and more efficiently. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Do all manner of traditional PR. And I also am an ace podcast producer. I have nine shows under my belt right now, all of which I'm working on to one extent or another. Whether it's booking, writing, technical production, execution, or just sheer concepting, give me a call or shoot me an email. It's John, J-O-N, at D-E-F-T-C-O-M. I'm on podcatchers everywhere, no matter where you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever. Leave a rating, leave a review if you can. That helps the algorithm. I don't know how, but it does. I'm out of here for this week. Thank you for listening. Have a happy and safe end of 2022. I hope the new year finds you filled with joy, success, and fulfillment. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.